You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, episode 39, for April 12th, 2009. Warning. This episode contains mature themes, adult language, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hey there, ladies and gents. It's another episode of the Metamore City Podcast. I am your host, Chris Lester, and I just got back from a wonderful week of spring break up in Portland. Got a chance to hang out with my... Got a chance to spend some time with my friend Stina and got to know the Portland area a little bit better. It's a beautiful part of the country, and I'm glad that I got the chance to visit. But back to business, because we've got a lot of stuff to do today, big section of story to cover, and we've got some announcements first. Uh, First off, con appearances. I am going to be at Balticon 43, which is going to be in Hunt Valley, Maryland, outside of Baltimore. That is this year's Memorial Day weekend, May 22nd through the 25th. So if you're going to be within the driving distance of the Baltimore area and you want to come out and see me, it would be lovely to have you there. We're going to do a live episode of Metamore City. We're going to do it as a radio drama. And it's going to be starring me, Sarah Lloyd, who plays Danny, Heather Welliver, the voice of Kate Katane, and Kim, the comic book goddess, the voice of Morgan Drowling. And we'll have some appearances from other members of the Metamore City family, too. So you'll just have to show up and see who's there. I'm also going to be doing a 10-minute reading on Friday night as part of a larger block that has several podcasting authors, including myself and Steve Ely, and I don't remember who else is going to be in there, but it should be awesome, so definitely be sure to make time for that if you're coming to the convention. Second announcement. The story contest for the Summer Interregnum is still going on. Please send in your stories by the end of May. I'm looking for something between 1,000 and 6,000 words, and I'm mostly looking for small stories that are character-focused rather than big, epic, plot-shaking things. So if you've got an idea in your head for a story and you think that it would fit well in the world of Metamore, send me an outline for what you have in mind. That email address is feedback at metamorecity.com. If it fits, I'll tell you to go for it. If it looks like it might fit, but it needs some tweaking, I'll let you know that too and give you some tips on what you need to do in order to make it canon. I'm looking forward to hearing what people come up with. This should be a lot of fun. And the person who writes the best story, in my estimation, will get their pick of one of the t-shirts at the Metamore City gift shop, which is at zazzle.com slash cwlester. Finally, one last announcement. Gail Carriger, who you should remember from our feedback shows, which have been coming out over the last couple of weeks, her book, Soulless, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. So, if you want to help support her, help support the tribe of people in the podcasting community, go over to Amazon.com and pre-order her book. It's a mass-market paperback, retailing for $7.99 in the U.S., And it looks like it's going to be a blast, guys. Lots of fun. 
steampunk Victorian vampires and werewolves in a comedy of manners and paranormal goings-on. Looks like it will be absolutely hilarious, so I strongly encourage you guys to all help support Gail, and let's do what we can to help make sure that Gail climbs up those charts and makes a name for herself in the world of publishing, because she deserves it. All right, you guys have waited long enough. Here is chapter 29 of Making the Cut. And here to introduce it are our dear friends from the Metamore City Editing Tower. Take it away, guys. Good evening, ladies and gents. Welcome to the Metamore City Podcast Production Tower. My name's Clippy. And I'm Snippy. And we're here because the boss wanted us to tell you the story so far. You see, last time he thought he could get away with not doing it. He figured it's getting towards the end of the book and all, and you guys probably know it all by now. Well, that didn't work out so well. You guys are smarter than that, right? (laughs) So anyway, uh, you know, he couldn't get any of them uh, fancy-schmancy podcast personalities to to read it for you, so he asked me and Snippy to gather up the editing elves and, uh, you know... Here's the story so far. In our last episode, New York Rocket guys, guys, hey! Shush! We're not all reading it at the same time. Look, I'll start. Snippy here will finish. And you guys, you only talk when I point at you. Alright? <laughs> yeah, it's good. Let's try it again. Here's the story so far. In our last episode, Miriam Bakhtava took Brian and Fiona to a factory warehouse at the base of Connolly Tower, leading them to believe that she was setting a trap for Victor. Daniel came along as well, despite Fiona's protest that it was too dangerous. Fiona shared a private moment of bonding with Miriam, in which Fee promised to follow through on something Miriam asked her to do, no matter what. Once they arrived at the factory, Miriam blew her cover by claiming that they were going to use Abby as bait to catch Victor, when Daniel knew that Abby was really at Eastside General Hospital on the other end of town, hidden under the codename of Jenny Bloggs. Fiona attacked Miriam as soon as the deception was exposed, but the elder sigh was too fast and flickered out of range of Fee's makeshift stake. As other vampires closed in on them, Miriam demanded for Brian, Fiona, and Daniel to surrender and accept a place in the Vampire Syndicate under her protection. Fiona refused, saying that they would rather die than become thralls. Miriam nodded sadly and gestured for the vamps to take them down. Meanwhile, at each side general, Sasha received a phone call from Rebecca, warning her that someone extremely dangerous was coming for Jenny and her baby. Sasha had the obstetrics ward evacuated and took Jenny to a lift that could carry them down to a crisis room on sublevel 2. Along the way, though, The electricity went out across the entire hospital. Someone had gotten access to the main power conduit running through the tower and disabled it. Sasha knew that only a high-level Psy operative would have gotten the training necessary to do that, and in one horrible instant she realized the truth. The mysterious Jenny was Abby Preston, and the man she was running from was Sasha's old mentor, Victor Hincavos. Trapped in the elevator, her security force frightened and confused, and with Sasha herself, the last line of defense between Abby and a hardened killer. Sasha had only one plan. Get herself and Abby out of the hospital. Now. 
Chapter 29 Daniel had heard former PSYOPs talk about the peculiar feeling they sometimes got during their missions, when the odds were hopeless and they knew that they were going to die. It was a sort of preternatural calm, a heightened sense of clarity and awareness that came with the knowledge that the situation truly couldn't get any worse. When Revenos was already sharpening his scythe behind you, you could put any thoughts of your own survival out of your head and focus on what really mattered, completing the mission. It was the rarest of sensations, and one that most people experienced no more than once in their lives, usually briefly. From what Daniel had been told by those lucky few who survived the experience, it was both exhilarating and strangely peaceful. What Daniel felt now was utterly unlike what the veterans had promised him, a raw animal terror that clawed at his insides and screamed for him to run. Only his years of training and self-discipline kept him from obeying that panicked voice inside him. Then again, this wasn't one of those cases where you had nothing to lose. They were fighting vampires, and that meant that there were possibilities much worse than death. One of those possibilities perched atop the nearby crates, locked in single combat with Fiona. She and Miriam Bakhtavar moved more quickly than the eye could see, a swirling dance of claw and stake that spiraled up and down the heights of the massive warehouse. The Elder's cloak billowed and floated as she moved, making her seem more like a wraith than a creature of flesh and bone. Fiona fought like a thing possessed, her wild red hair pulling free of its restraints and whirling about her like a lion's mane. Daniel only caught glimpses of the egoist's duel, several more immediate concerns looming close at hand. He and Brian stood side by side at the doorway, making a bottleneck that cut down on the number of vamps that could attack them at once. They were all far slower than Miriam, and probably a lot weaker as well. Most of them clearly came from weaker bloodstock than Miriam herself, probably four or five generations removed from the prince who commanded them. Still, even the weakest was as strong as a strong man, and they outnumbered Daniel and Brian seven to one. We can't stay here, Daniel panted, after Brian threw back the latest wave of attackers with a blast of lightning from a nearby power conduit. Brian glanced up at the two egoists, then back at the vamps, who were already picking themselves up. We can't leave her either. Who, Fiona or Miriam? Brian's face twisted, grief flickering into anger, then gone. Either one. Daniel nodded, then wiped the sweat out of his eyes and readjusted his stance. You got a plan? More of an idea. Brian's eyes slid over to him. Can't do it without you. The vamps started closing in again, most of them angling toward Daniel and away from Brian. I'll take it. Right then. Just hold on tight. They were almost on him now. As Daniel set himself to dodge one vamp and take the second one down at the knees, he just had time to wonder, hold on tight to what? The answer came in the form of the large iron loading hook from the gantry crane, and the ponderous heavy crate hanging from it. It swung down bare centimeters from Daniel's head and plowed into the onrushing vamps like a bowling ball through ten pins. The crate tore free from the hook on impact and tumbled across the floor, scattering heavy machine parts that landed like sledgehammers on the unfortunate vamps. The now empty hook swung around in a turn that was too sharp to be natural, then slowed as it approached Brian's outstretched hand. He grabbed hold of the hook as it came past, 
and Daniel wrapped his hands around the braided steel cable. The metal trembled under his hands as Brian propelled them up into the rafters, setting them down atop the narrow tracks of the gantry. The beam was only two decimeters wide, but Daniel found his footing swiftly. Brian, less sure on his feet, straddled the track and held on with both legs and one hand. You gonna be all right up here? Daniel asked, still breathing hard from the exertion. Brian nodded once, scanning the floor below them with a tactician's critical eye. From here, I can even the odds. Just keep them off me. For once, the vampire's desire to take them alive worked to their advantage. Daniel and Brian would have been sitting ducks up here for anyone with a gun, but the vamps were armed only with nets, chains, and shock sticks, as well as their own teeth and claws. If they wanted Daniel and Brian, they'd have to come up here and get them. It only took a moment for the vamps to spot Daniel and Brian on their new perch, but three precious minutes passed before they found their way through the maze of crates and located the access ladder at one end of the gantry. During that time, Brian turned the entire warehouse against them. Catwalks pulled free from their supports and fell on them, pinning them under hundreds of kilos of steel. Chains came alive in the vampire's hands, wrapping around their legs and binding their arms behind them. Levers and gears broke free from machinery, turning into makeshift spears and whirling saw blades. By the time the first vampires reached the bottom rungs of the ladder, Brian had cut their numbers down by half. Daniel fought down the churning fear inside him and focused on the moment. Two of the vampires were scrambling up the ladder, blizzard quick, one following close behind the other. Daniel thought about throwing something at them, but the angles were bad, and the only things he had at his disposal were his knives, his one surviving tonfa, and one of the rough stakes Fiona had made from the other. He could reach down and try to stab at them, but he knew the speed of the vamp's reflexes, and he didn't want them pulling him off the gantry while he was off balance. Instead, he hung back, just out of arm's reach, his body centered atop the narrow track. He struck as soon as the first vampire's head appeared, snapping a front kick between the creature's eyes. The vamp saw it coming and dodged to the left, straight into the low round kick that Daniel used as a follow-up. The force of the blow caught the vampire off balance and set him tumbling off the ladder. He struck his companion on the way down, but the second vamp held on and kept climbing, moving more slowly and keeping a firm grip on the rungs. Daniel struck at one of its hands with his tonfa as it came within reach, shattering the small bones with a savage overhand blow. The vamp howled and its grip slackened. The bones would knit back together within minutes, but until then, its supernatural strength had nothing to push against but a mass of splintered fragments. The vamp shifted its weight over to its other hand to compensate, and Daniel stomped down on it with his heel. The crack of the bones was joined by another shriek, and the vampire tumbled down to join his comrade on the floor ten meters below. Daniel! Brian's voice made Daniel's head whip around. He saw the trouble immediately. Three of the vamps had climbed up one of the ladders at the far end of the room and were swinging across the rafters like chimpanzees, heading for the opposite end of the gantry. Daniel cursed under his breath and moved to meet them as quickly as he dared, stepping lightly over Brian on the way. Silently, Daniel thanked Eli for the years of practice Victor had given him in fighting on the balance beams at the Somnoth. He'd thought that particular training regimen was ridiculous at first, but over time he'd seen the value of it. Once you got used to fighting on a piece of wood a decimeter wide, you'd be able to keep your balance under just about any circumstances imaginable. The vampires, being accustomed to the rough-and-tumble fighting of the street, 
were unprepared for the finesse the battle required. They were also used to being nearly indestructible, and that made them reckless. Daniel baited them with simple feints and took them down with sweeping attacks that emphasized leverage over brute force. When the vamps tried to use their strength advantage, he turned it against them. When they relied on speed, he danced out of the way until they overbalanced themselves, then knocked them off before they could recover. When more vamps came up the ladder on the near side, he darted back in that direction and met them in turn. It was like a maddened game of Lord of the Castle, and each time the vamps tumbled down, Brian used his powers to put one or two more out of contention. Daniel was taken by surprise when he tripped up the latest vamp, turned, and found the far end of the track empty. Brian buried Daniel's latest victim under a mass of twisted catwalk, then looked up at Daniel, the sweat pouring down his face. That's the last of them. Couldn't dust all of them, but they're out of it for now. Which leaves just one. Daniel followed the unspoken thought, looking down at Fiona and Miriam as they continued their deadly dance across the tops of the crates. It was like watching a one-on-one skyball game played out at ten times normal speed, with the egoist's superhuman muscles standing in for the jump pads. Both of them were so fast that Daniel couldn't even see which blows were being blocked and which ones hit home. Every thirty seconds or so, Miriam would withdraw out of melee range and try to stare down Fiona but each time she would be distracted by an entangling chain, a gear traveling at bullet speed, or a scrap of whirling metal. Then Fiona was on her again, and the hand-to-hand fight continued. Gotta keep her off balance, Brian explained. He still sounded winded. If she gets a chance to use her telepathy, we can't block her. Daniel nodded, suppressing a chill that ran down his spine. Should I go down and try to help? Don't be a fool. She'd tear you open in three seconds. He shook his head, looking lost. I don't know what to do. She can't retreat. Miriam can't get tired. And I can't call for help through the damn shielding. And if you leave to get help, Miriam will just mind blast her. Daniel took a deep breath. (sighs) Okay, so it's gotta be me. Be careful. She wants us alive as revenge for Viscount. But I doubt her master said anything about you. Daniel nodded. That could be good or bad for him depending on how deep Miriam's programming had sunk in. He grabbed the big loading hook from its resting place at Brian's side and prepared to swing for the exit, hoping that he could roll with the landing and avoid breaking anything. As his muscles tensed to leap, though, he heard Fiona cry out. Ah! Looking down, he saw that the two women had stopped on a tall stack of crates almost directly below him. Miriam had finally caught Fiona in a grapple, and just as quickly she sank her fangs into Fee's neck. Fiona! Brian shouted, his voice cracking with desperate fear. Fiona went limp in Miriam's arms, the vampire's narcotic venom sending a rush of pleasure through her body. Miriam, too, had fallen into a haze of ecstasy, making little growls of delight as she laughed and slurped at the open wounds. Now, at last, Daniel felt that crystalline moment of clarity that the psyops had talked about. Miriam's back was turned to him, her head barely three meters below the gantry. She stood near the edge of the crate, her feet only centimeters from open air. Time slowed as instincts honed by years of practice judged the distance, weighed the force of his jump, visualized how his hands would move. He took the hook and cable in his hands and formed them into a loop about three decimeters wide. Then, champion skyball player Daniel Sharabi leapt down on his target, screaming a battle cry as he fell. Ah! 
Miriam looked up from Fiona's neck in sudden alarm, just as Daniel drove the loop of the cable around her head like a slam dunk in reverse. While Miriam was on solid footing at the crate's edge, Daniel fell past her through open space. The cable went tight around Miriam's neck as Daniel fell, and the elder was pulled off of Fiona and into midair. The cable swung back away from the crates like a giant pendulum, the tension in the line translating Daniel's fall into horizontal motion. Daniel held on for dear life as the pendulum swung through the low point in its arc, then up, up, until it came to a stop on the other side. He hovered there for an instant, Miriam dangling helplessly above him, and then the pendulum swung back the way they had come, where Fiona was waiting with stake in hand. Egoist-enhanced strength lashed out, burying the broken tonfa to the hilt in Miriam's heart. The vampire instantly went limp, like a marionette whose strings had been cut. An instant later, Daniel slammed feet first into the side of the crate. A loud crack and a flash of white-hot pain told Daniel that his heels had broken on impact. He held on, somehow, as Brian let out the cable and lowered him gently to the ground. Daniel held up his legs and let Brian set him down on his ass, sparing his feet any further agonies. With as much focus as he could muster, Daniel tapped his healing power and channeled it into his legs. Cool, soothing energy replaced the blinding pain, and he painstakingly knitted his bones back together. By the time he finished, Brian was at his side and ready to help him up. Thanks, Daniel said, brushing himself off. Unexpectedly, Brian wrapped his arms around Daniel in a tight hug. Thank you. An awkward moment later, Brian released him, and Daniel looked around. What happened to the other vamps? Fogged out, Brian said, sounding relieved. Guess they didn't think it was worth it after their leader went down. Daniel nodded. A vampire could turn into fog more or less at will, but reincorporating afterward was a slow process, and it left the creature drained and vulnerable to attack. Because of that, vamps usually saved it for emergencies. Still, we better make ourselves scarce, just in case Ardvalos had a backup plan. A stab of raw anguish rippled through the air, so strong that even Daniel's pathetic psi senses could detect it. He turned and saw Fiona kneeling on the ground, with Miriam Bakhtavar's body cradled in her arms. The fallen elder looked peaceful in death, though the trickle of blood running down the side of her mouth was a sober reminder of what she had become, and would become again if the stake were removed from her heart. Fiona buried her face in the woman's long, dark hair, her whole body shaking with silent sobs. She didn't seem to notice the blood still oozing from the wounds in her neck. Daniel knelt beside her and placed a healing hand over the bite marks. They were small and the incisions were clean. They knitted closed with only a moment's effort. Fiona looked up at him then. The fire was gone from her eyes, leaving an expression of naked heartache. The honesty and vulnerability in that expression were like nothing Daniel had ever seen from her. Daniel, please. Her voice came out hoarse and choked with emotion. My strength is almost gone. Help me carry her. I can't leave her here. Not like this. Daniel nodded gravely. Of course, Fee. Of course. He helped Fiona to her feet, and together they carried her fallen hero out of the warehouse, into the tunnels and toward the safety of home. 
Sasha shoved with all of the force her 43 kilos could manage. The big lever finally turned. There was a hiss of released air, and the outer lift doors slid open about a decimeter. Okay, she said, gesturing at the doors. You get that one, and I'll get this one. Together, she and Abby pushed the doors open the rest of the way. The stopped car was about a meter below the level of the outer doors, but fortunately there was a ladder built into the side of the shaft. Abby moved slowly and awkwardly, but she was able to climb up and out of the car without assistance. Which was a good thing, because Sasha was pretty sure she didn't have enough mass to haul the pregnant girl out of there by main strength. Quietly now, Sasha murmured as they headed down the hallway. Victor will expect us to take the closest emergency exit to get out, so we'll go across to the far end of the building and take the stairs from there. Keep your shields up and don't talk unless you have to. Our only advantage is that he doesn't know exactly where we are, so let's keep it that way. Abby nodded, her eyes wide. Sasha turned and led her onward. She wished mightily that she could talk to her people in the hospital security team, but she didn't dare open a telepathic link when it might give away their position. Like it or not, she and Abby were on their own here, unless somebody managed to get the comm systems back online. Considering who they were dealing with, though, Sasha wouldn't have been surprised if the servers for the wireless network were a pile of melted slag by now. Victor had always emphasized the need to take out your enemy's eyes and ears. Once you had them disorganized and confused, your job was ten times easier. The halls of the hospital weren't completely dark, but the battery-powered emergency lamps provided only spotty illumination, making the darkness between them seem doubly threatening. Abby's labored breathing was an ongoing counterpart to the pounding of Sasha's own heart. She heard muffled gunshots from the floors below them, distant shouts, and the occasional boom of large, heavy objects hitting walls or ceilings. She kept Abby moving, as quickly and quietly as possible, until the sounds of battle faded into the distance. Unlike the hallways, the emergency stairwell was completely dark. Sasha frowned in momentary confusion. If anything, the stairwells had more emergency lights than the floors themselves. Then she stepped into the stairwell and heard the crunch of glass underfoot, and the reason for the blackout became obvious. Should we go back? No. Sasha murmured, keeping her voice low but shaking her head emphatically. That's what he wants. He's trying to use our fear to hem us in, to force us to take the path he's picked for us. Just hold on to the rail and take it nice and easy, and watch out for the glass. The descent was agonizingly slow. Sasha went in front, sweeping glass out of Abby's path as quietly as possible. Sasha cursed the fact that she hadn't taken the time to have Abby put on her shoes, but then she hadn't known who she was dealing with at that point either. Her instincts screamed at her to run away, as far and as fast as possible, but there was no way they could outrun Victor in Abby's present condition. Stealth was their friend far more than speed. She consoled herself with the knowledge that time wasn't on Victor's side. Taking the hospital's power grid offline would alert emergency services and the higher-ups in the hive itself. Help would come, if they could stay out of his sights long enough for it to get here. They reached the fourth-level exit landing after only three flights, but Sasha signaled for them to keep going. Victor would expect them to take the fastest, easiest way out of the building. That exit would be watched, sealed, or trapped. Possibly all three. No, Sasha would take Abby down to the third Skyway level, through the hospital sublevels and into the office complex below. 
Victor might have been able to get into the hospital unnoticed, but the offices below it weren't hive-owned, and Sasha doubted that he could have gotten away with sabotaging their stairwells without someone catching wind of it and calling the cops. Keep doing the unexpected. Keep him guessing. That's the only way you're going to get out of this. The door into the hospital sublevel zone was locked, but Sasha had the key, which was the ordinary brass mechanical kind and not an electric pass card, thank Eli. They continued past the first sublevel in silence, but when they reached the second landing, Abby came up short. SL2. Sasha was already sweeping glass off of the next flight of steps. She shone the light from her phone back up at Abby who was standing transfixed in front of the locked door that led out of the stairwell into the second sublevel. What's wrong? Sasha murmured, trying to keep the frustration out of her voice. It wouldn't accomplish anything to get angry at the girl. Sublevel two. Abby said, her eyes wide. That's where the crisis room is, where you said you're taking me. That was the old plan, Abby. Now I'm just trying to get you out of here. I know, but you told those other guards you were taking me here. So? The answer came to Sasha a split second after she asked the question. A second after that, an earth-shaking boom rattled through the tower. It sounded like it had come from somewhere on the same floor. Abby said it anyway. So what if Victor left one of those guards alive long enough to tell him that? Move! Sasha snapped, dashing down the stairs. She kicked as much of the broken glass out of the way as possible, but there was no time to be thorough. Oh, God. Abby breathed, her rising panic showing in the soft whimper of her voice. Oh gods, oh gods, oh gods. Six steps down, Abby's bare foot landed on a stray sliver of glass that Sasha had missed. To her credit, the girl didn't cry out, either verbally or psychically. Only a brief hiss of indrawn breath told Sasha what had happened. Unfortunately, the fear and adrenaline had burned through the last of the sleep enchantment on her unborn child. And while Abby had put up enough shields to hide her pain from Sasha, little Darla felt it almost as much as Abby. Faced with inexplicable pain and the echoes of her mother's fear, Darla responded the way any infant would. The psychic scream tore through Sasha's shields, stabbing white-hot pain through her temples and making her legs give way beneath her. She caught herself on the handrail, but Abby wasn't so lucky. She tumbled down to the next landing, her arms curled instinctively around her belly to protect the baby. Unfortunately, that meant that she wasn't shielding her head. The back of her skull cracked up against the railing as she fell. Not hard enough to fracture anything, but definitely enough to stun. Sasha rose to her feet, throwing all her strength into rebuilding her psychic shields. Darla's second scream was weaker than the first, and it still nearly blinded her with the force of its raw anguish. Good God, does that kid have power? Sasha tried to send her a wave of peace and reassurance, but the child was terrified and inconsolable, and she was broadcasting their location to every teep in a three-click radius. Abby, get up! Sasha shouted, abandoning any hope of stealth. She put the force of her mind behind the words, and Abby's eyes fluttered twice, then opened. Sasha? Abby asked, sounding dazed. Get up, damn it! Another crash sounded above them, closer than the first. The sublevels were divided into self-contained, secure sections, and Victor apparently wasn't interested in being subtle about getting through them. Sasha reached down and pulled on the girl's arms, trying to drag her to her feet. 
Since Abby outweighed her by at least 20 kilos, that was more easily said than done. Darla gave a third cry, then fell silent, apparently exhausting her tiny body's energy reserves. A moment later, Abby's eyes cleared, as she apparently remembered why Sasha was pulling on her. She got her uninjured foot under her and finally started helping Sasha to get her upright. She wrapped one arm around Sasha's shoulders and hobbled with her to the door to SL3. No time to run any farther, Sasha said, putting in the key and twisting it to open the door. Gotta get our backs to a wall. Try to hold them off. Something. As plans went, this one sucked, but it was all they had left. Maybe help would arrive in time. Sasha spotted a heavy security door ahead, the lights on the control pad glowing green. Apparently the battery backups were working fine here. SL3 was where the hospital kept its supply of side drugs, the performance-enhancing combat meds that only active MID agents were supposed to have. The Collective had been making its own supply in secret for years now, for those unofficial missions that were sometimes necessary to defend Collective interests. Caches of the drugs were hidden all over the Empire, usually in Siren hospitals like Eastside. Performance enhancing. It was a long shot, and Sasha hated the idea with every fiber of her being. She went to the door anyway. It opened to her handprint and retinal scan, revealing a storeroom filled with shelves. She turned on the lights, which were still working, and directed Abby to a stool in front of the single workbench. After making sure that the door was shut and bolted behind them, Sasha started scanning through the shelves. What are you looking for? Abby asked, the fear still thick in her voice. Evidently, she didn't trust that security door to stop Victor any more than Sasha did. This. Sasha grabbed an individually wrapped syringe, already filled with a turquoise blue liquid. She tore off the wrapper, checked the body mass guide on the side of the syringe, and pressed down the plunger until it was at the line marked for 45 kilos. Abby's eye must have caught the label on the other side of the syringe. MD-109? You probably know it as Mad John. Sasha uncapped the needle and pressed it into the vein just below her elbow. But that stuff is toxic. I know. Sasha pressed the plunger home. An instant later, the world came alive with a swirling, pulsing glow that seemed to come from everywhere. An electric tingling crackled across her skin, making her hair stand on end. Her telepathy blossomed open around her, filling her with a sort of hyper-awareness. She could feel Abby's mind with new clarity, as well as the minds of everyone in the building around her, and she knew that she could reach out and touch any of them with her power. New strength surged into her muscles, and Sasha felt her lips spread apart in a savage grin. She felt invincible. She knew it was a lie. She knew that the synthetic neurotransmitter that was boosting her control over her psychic power was also slowly poisoning her. She had 20 minutes, maybe less. If she didn't take the antagonist before then, the Mad John would burn out her synapses, and she would fall into a coma and die. She grabbed the syringe containing the antagonist and stuck it in her pocket. This would be done in a lot less than 20 minutes, one way or another. And right now, she felt like Victor was going to get a hell of a lot more than he bargained for. Here's what we do. The words spilled out of her like she'd just downed a triple espresso. We form a gestalt and pool our power together. That's a lot of juice, but with the Mad John, I should be able to control it. Victor's gonna bust down that door, and when he does, I pry my way into his head and shut him down from the inside. 
I don't care what kind of weird-ass shielding he's got going for him, but he's got to have some kind of link between his head and the rest of the world. Between you, me, and John, we're going to find it. She pulled out her pistol and flicked off the safety. All we got to do is shut down his PK for a few seconds. Then he's mine. Sasha felt Abby's uncertainty, but the girl opened up her mind to her anyway. Sasha gasped at the sense of newfound power as her mind fused with Abby's, but with the heightened awareness brought on by the drug, they swiftly integrated their talents into a single psychic powerhouse. Identities flowed together and became one, as Sasha Abby drew her gun and turned to await her attacker. Come and get me, you bastard. Come and get me. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after these messages. Hey, we need something new for Balticon this year. Yeah, that's coming up May 22nd, 25th at Marriott Hunts Valley in Baltimore. What do you mean something new? Well, we always have sci-fi authors and artists like this year's guest of honor, Charlie Strauss, but Balticon is too, I don't know, too filk, too singer-songwritery. Yeah, yeah, I know. We need to make it more metal. More metal? Well, shit, let's get a special guest of honor who will just rock out. Oh, yeah, metal. I know. How about New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler? Did someone call for metal? I'm the most metalist special guest of honor of all time, and I'll be at Balticon 2009 because it's rock. In addition to killing a chicken, a pig, and a cow live on stage, I will give a talk on how I kicked in the doors of the New York companies, moshed through the publishing industry with free content, and then blasted big publishing upside the dome with a tire iron. So get in the pit, bitches! The Balticon Pit! Attention, everyone. I am Nina Kimberly the Merciless daughter of the feared barbarian conqueror, Marcus the Merciless. My life story, as written by Christiana Ellis, is a comic fantasy novel coming to print on May 15, 2009 from Dragon Moon Press. To celebrate, Christiana is producing a brand new version of the podcast audiobook. Well, I'm here to do my part as well. And in order to help promote both the podcast and the print release, I am hereby seizing control of the internet and all who use it. Now, I understand that some of you may find this a controversial action, but the truth of the matter is that I don't care. Bloggers, podcasters, I demand that you surrender all your listeners and readers to me. If you are willing to declare your allegiance and loyalty, then you may be allowed to remain in administrative control over your individual domains. Resistors, however, will be dealt with in a fashion that they may find physically unpleasant, psychologically disturbing, and in all likelihood, really embarrassing. To reiterate, play this promo, listen to the podcast at ninakimberly.com or christianaellis.com. Declare your loyalty to me and the mighty Ook Horde, and you may be spared. Defy me, and be prepared to face the consequences. That's Nina Kimberly the Merciless by Christiana Ellis. And don't you forget it. Well then, those are some pretty specific demands you have there, Nina Kimberly. I would respond, but... I think I'm going to let my friend Susan here do it for me. This is the White Star Fleet. 
negative on surrender. We will not stand down. Who is this? Identify yourself. Who am I? I am Susan Ivanova, commander, daughter of Andre and Sophie Ivanov. I am the right hand of vengeance and the boot that is going to kick your sorry ass all the way back to Earth. Death incarnate. And the last living thing that you are ever going to see. God sent me. Surrender to tyrants? I don't think so, Kimberly. We will fight you. We will fight you as the people of Menamore have fought against every tyrant we have ever faced. We will fight you in the RSS feeds. We will fight you in the blog posts. We will fight you on Boing Boing and on Twitter. We will fight you on Skype. We will fight you in Gmail. We will fight you on every front that you may choose to bring the battle against us. We will never surrender. Not to you. Not to any other tin horn dictator like you. And that's all I've got to say. Well then, now that we've taken care of that bit of silliness, I have a bit of housekeeping that I need to do. In the last episode, I neglected to mention two of my listeners who contributed their voices as security guards for episode 38. David Van Sunder and Tim Dodge both came through for me with audio clips for some of the security guards who you've heard in that chapter. Unfortunately, when I was recording my outro last time, you may recall that there was some folk music craziness going on at my home, and so I had to record at Artistic Whispers Studios. So I didn't have in front of me the list of all of the people who had contributed. So I tried to do it from memory, and not surprisingly, given what my memory is good for, I forgot a couple of people. So my deepest apologies to you, Tim and David, and thank you so much for contributing your voices to that episode. And next time, I will be sure to make sure you get the proper credit. And your names have also been credited now in the show notes. One other thing that you guys need to know about is the new archives page on metamorecity.com. Since we have now reached the point where the RSS feed was getting so long that new episodes were getting chopped out of it because the show notes were too big, I have now removed the show notes from the RSS feed for most of the old episodes. And those episodes, with their full show notes, are now listed on the archives page. You can access that from the top nav bar at metamorecity.com. I'll continue to add new episodes up there every few months and move their show notes from the RSS feed into the archives pages so that we'll be better able to keep the RSS file small and thus prevent any more difficulties with getting episodes to post on time. Finally, some people are also having trouble downloading some of the new episodes. Obviously, if you're having trouble downloading this one, you're not going to hear this. But if you should have any trouble downloading any future episodes, or if you've had any trouble downloading episodes in the past, I'm going to endeavor to make alternate download locations available for you guys. You'll see the links to those in the show notes for the episodes when they are posted. So if you are having any difficulties getting files in the future look for those ex- alternative look for those alternative links and that'll give you another option 
another way to get the file and hopefully download it with fewer troubles. And I am trying to figure out what is causing these download difficulties. I think that it may simply be because we have so many people listening to the show now that the new episodes, when they're getting downloaded, are just jamming up my servers. The people in charge of my hosting service claim that there's nothing wrong on their end, but this problem has become widespread enough, and it's causing enough difficulties for enough people that I had to answer it and come up with another way of making the episodes available. So watch for those alternative download links. And then in the summer, I'm going to make Metamore City Season 1 available on patiobooks.com, so you'll be able to download the episodes there. If you'd like to sound off about what you've heard on the show, you can call into our voicemail line, which is at 206-203-0994. That is 206-203-0994. You can also leave your comments in text or audio at feedback at metamorecity.com. You can contribute to the ongoing discussions at thecursed.org. That's our discussion forum. Or you can post your comments on the blog at www.metamorecity.com. You can join our Facebook group, Fans of Metamore City, and you can follow me on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. That'll do it for this week. I'll talk to you guys again in two with Chapter 30. It's all coming down to the wire here, folks. How will Sasha and Abby handle their fight against Victor? Who will survive? Who will die? You'll find out in two weeks. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.com. .upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org.